Welcome to the broadcast. Every Arizona homeowner's best friend. Thanks for tuning in. It's Rosie on the house. Your weekend wake-up tradition. I talk to the trees. Stop and hear what I say. Come on around back, Arizona. It is Saturday morning, 8 o'clock, the outdoor living hour of Rosie on the House, your Saturday morning tradition since 1988. Second Saturday of the month, so that means we are talking trees. And to do that, we've got ISA certified arborist Sarah Maitland in studio with us from Save a Tree, along with Gary Peterson from Save a Tree. And y'all also have a special guest, Laura Hackett, returning from Liberty Wildlife and we have no shortage of topics today, but that doesn't mean you can't participate. If you'd like to talk about your trees, you can call in at one 767 4348 That's one 888 you. Text questions can be sent to 411-923, or you can email us at info at rosyonthehouse.com if you'd like to snap a picture and send it. If you've, there's a tree that you like and you're trying to figure out what it is to so you can plant one at your home, or a little insect identification, you can send an image to info at rosyonthehouse.com. And we, y'all always bring a topic of the month, but you also bring a tree of the month. And let's start with the tree because it's a beautiful one. Oh, my gosh, it is beautiful. Um, so we're going to talk about the Chinese evergreen pear. And it's a really pretty glossy-leafed, large-leafed, um, ornamental type of a tree um, it's called Pyrus Kawakamii, and the fun thing about the website that we, we tell you guys to go to, the ASU plant list, there is actually a link that will tell you how to pronounce the genus and species of all the trees. So that's important. It's, it's helpful. Anyway, this is a beautiful tree, and it's kind of a medium-sized tree, but it, it's, it's more of a fufu tree, or it's an ornamental tree. So... It's something they're going to have to take care of, but it, it's special. Um, in the winter right now, I think down around um, Arcadia and a lot of the areas in central Phoenix, you'll see a beautiful white flowering tree. And that's the, the flowering pear or the ever, Chinese evergreen pear. And, and so it stays green most of the year. Um, and then you'll get a little bit of a red, yellow fall color, and then it starts to get ratty, and then all of a sudden it bursts out with new leaves and beautiful white flowers. Almost kind of like, you know, Washington, D.C., the cherry blossom. That, that's kind of what you get. And how big will these trees get? Okay, they get about 20 or 30 feet at maximum, and they have a real kind of a asymmetrical look to them, so they kind of work in those Japanese-Chinese gardens. Um but it really needs a little bit of shade, um, not so much shade, but protection from that late afternoon sun. And this is the kind of a tree where you would want to put it in a lawn or around other trees so it's got that humidity and that shade and that, um, that kind of an environment. A little microclimate around it. Yeah, definitely, definitely. But it won't fit in, a, in a, a gravel landscape very well. It'll really, really struggle. It does not like the heat. Um, but it, it does do well in a lot of um, estates and landscapes. Now, one thing I've, I've said, and I'm embarrassed I haven't done it yet, is work hard enough ahead of the Talking Trees topic to have a map on our plant tree. Because when we have the tree of the month, you, we always, like you said, we take 
the content from ASU and we share it on our website and the details about the tree and the species, but have a map on there. Here's the public places you can go see this tree out planted somewhere so you can get an idea. You can see the microclimates that it's thriving in. You can uh, see if it's something that you want to bring into your home or yard. But I do know there's a couple of these at the Arrowhead Country Club off of the dining room area. It's a it's like a half-circle uh, patio, and off to the west side, there's a few, and it's under, you know, the, it, it's shaded by this huge ficus tree. It's actually a couple ficus trees, so it doesn't get sun till well afternoon, and it's uh, surrounded by a lawn, so it's constantly getting watered. So you, it's a, a very, but I mean, in the spring, it is, like you said, just... I mean, you just stand there and look at it. <laughs> yeah, it's breathtaking. And what I did was I called Very a couple good. of our arborists and said, you know, where can I tell the, the the listeners to go look at them? And they said, just drive through Arcadia. Every scene, everybody's got beautiful pears. But what you want to watch about this tree is that it really has a problem with iron, and it's because of our alkaline soils. So what you need to do and what we incorporate in our fertilization is a, is a pH reducer, a citrus pH reducer. So that's what makes the nutrient or the micronutrients available to the tree. And you might even give them a little bit of extra micronutrient, um, but it's the pH of the soil that you have to control. And and you can put the pH reducer in, but then the water still has high, high alkaline. So you have to, it's a program. This is a tree you have to care for, but it's worth it. It's just beautiful when it blooms. That's the... Evergreen? Chinese Evergreen Elm. Chinese Evergreen Elm. And you, your, your scientific name one more time? Pyrus Kawakamiai. Say that something, three times. And it's something you'll never need to know. <laughs> yeah, it's Pyrus Kawakamiai. There's a couple of different pears in the valley, um, but this one is really especially beautiful. We do have a little trouble with fire blight with it, um, and that's just because it needs that hu- moist, humid environment and... The, you know, like the, the irrigated areas with the lawns, you're going to have that more humidity, and that's where you get a little bit of fire blight, but not a lot. Very good. Well, in addition to the tree of the month, we always have a talking trees to do. But before we get to tree pruning, uh, why don't you introduce your guest because she's going to talk you out of pruning trees. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yes. Laura was here in August, and... We're having her back because it's really important time for trees and protecting birds. And, and Laura Hackett is here from Liberty Wildlife. Yeah, thank you for having me back. This is a very important time of year for us because we are in these last quiet bit before all the babies start coming. And well, and we who, for somebody that's not oh, familiar with the organization? I am with Liberty Wildlife, <laughs> and we are a nonprofit wildlife uh, rescue and rehabilitation and education center. Uh, located by 24th Street and Broadway, just south of Sky Harbor Airport. And we've got a facility where we have a hospital to take care of sick, injured, and orphaned native wildlife and hopefully rehabilitate them and get them back out into the wild. We have a lovely facility there that people can come and take a look into our windows to see how our hospital works and then also meet some of the non-releasable birds that we have and other animals. It's not just birds that we have there, but we're mostly known for birds. Um, and our hospital gets very busy starting soon. <laughs> and that's because? We have babies coming soon. So baby season is upon us. And anybody who talks trees um, or walks around the valley around here is going to start seeing and hearing birds all over the place. They are waking us up as soon as the sun is popping up now. 
and they're building nests, and we should be seeing some of our first hatchlings, um, hummingbirds, great horned owls. Those are some of our first babies that we start having come in, and then uh, once that starts, then everything starts coming in, and not just the baby birds, but also baby bunnies. All the mammals start having their babies soon, so we get really, really busy with, with orphaned animals that have you know, lost their way from their parents somehow. And then when y'all get one of these animals, you, your goal isn't to keep it. It's to build it right. strong enough to be re-released. We want to get everything back out into the wild. So we have fabulous volunteers that are trained um, to care for all of them, to make sure that they grow up strong, get the right nutrients. And then that's part of the joy of volunteering with Liberty Wildlife is they get to be part of the release then and get them back out into the wild, which is obviously the, the main aim um, our orphan care volunteers, it's a seasonal position. Um, it'll be starting up soon, and we'll be training them on all the baby bird identification and learning what they eat. They spend about four-hour shifts where they start open one little bin with baby birds, and the birds start chirping at them, and they feed those ones, close the bin, and go down the aisle to the, the next couple bins. And by the time they get to that row, those first ones are hungry again because baby <laughs> birds eat every 20 minutes. <laughs> I did not know that. Oh, yeah. It's, oh, that's it's pretty fun. Hard. And it's, it's pretty important um, to take wildlife into effect when you're doing your pruning also because the inner shade of the tree, a lot of people like to strip out their trees. That inner canopy, that little shade is what really protects them from the sun when they're very young. And even even the adults protect them, their own babies if they are exposed and so when you're working around trees, you got to be really careful to be respectful of that. Um, there's a lot of times we just won't even cut a branch. And, I, I mean, I had, had a gentleman's, you know, name on my sticker on my monitor for about four months because I had to wait till I was back in that area and the birds were gone. And then we went back and got that one branch. <laughs> That's great. We love yeah. when we hear stories like that because it's yeah. very, very rare that people – realize that there's a nest right there and they think they have to trim right away and um and unfortunately then the, the bird gets displaced and can't grow up in the wild i have a story about that a uh, wood dove uh, i was trimming my tree and i i wasn't even looking up as i started to trim <laughs> flies away right in my face I'm like, okay fine <laughs> i come back do it again <laughs> comes back and I, it took me two tries to figure out there must be a nest up there and sure enough it was but what i was really impressed with from the time she had eggs in the nest to Easter time, four to six weeks, those birds were already ready to go. Yeah, that's the nice thing is that they mature really quickly, they grow really quickly, and they fly the coop really quickly. So if you can hold off, which is what we ask people to do, that's the best for, for the birds. And then you can trim as soon as they leave. And, and then if you don't want them, um, just keep an eye on those trees and knock down nests as soon as you start seeing the birds building. It, you know, just to Yeah, before the babies come, Exactly, right? yeah. <laughs> So we'll talk about printing deciduous trees because right now they're not putting their nests in anything that hasn't any foliage. I've got uh, my mulberries, my pistache, my ash trees. They're all, you know, the, the ash trees, you're starting to see the blooms starting to come out a little bit, but there's obviously no nest in there. It doesn't have the protection that they need. So now is a great time to do that, and we'll talk about how to do that. But uh, one thing I wanted you to share that you mentioned before we went on air was about palm trees and owls. I would not have put those two together. And most people don't. Most people don't realize that, um, especially barn owls, um, but we've gotten great horned owls too, love using that that upper skirt of the, the palm tree um, for their nests. Um Owls, for the most part, don't really build a nest like the smaller birds do, where you can actually see a, a twig nest. They just usually find a location where they can drop their eggs, and that palm tree is a perfect location. It's got covering. It's got protection from anything else around. And so 
a lot of babies that we get come from people that are palming, uh, trimming the palm trees and they're cutting all the, the skirts off and everything like that and, and the babies fall to the ground and either get injured or you can't get back up and there's no place for them to sit and so they come into Liberty Wildlife. We're talking trees. Join us, one 767 4348 So tall a tree, so small a man. A man may grow for all he's worth, but only trees are down to earth. So tall a tree, so small a man. Talking trees, we do it the second Saturday of every month. If you follow along in your your home maintenance calendar, you know where we've got the evergreen pear. And uh, our talking point, our to-do for the week, for the month, is pruning your trees. And real quick, before we get there, we had a text come in from one of our other uh, Outdoor Living Hour hosts. We've got uh, Gary Peterson wanted to know about the fire blight and the uh, evergreen Chinese. You said they're a little susceptible to that. They are. And fire blight is something that you have to catch and you have to do several applications. And you start to get it at like at bud point. And you do a foliar spray with a bacterial, um, something that's going to hit a bacterial. It's bacteria is what it is. And, and so you start in the spring and when they're at bud point and then just about to bloom and then right when the blooms come out, if you hit them three times, like two weeks apart, you can control fire blight. Um, fire blight can be spread with pruning tools. Um, so that's something you always want to have alcohol and, and spray your tools when you're when you are working with those. And what does it look like so I know that I'm dealing with it and that I need to clean my pruners now before I move on to the next tree? Yeah, kind of the, the, the most common indicator is the, the stem tip of the branch will, will just make a hook, almost like a little shepherd's hook. Hmm. And the tree becomes sickly looking, and a lot of times that's the best sign. Okay, very good. Cleaning, uh, cleaning your tools is actually pretty important because you can trans, and a lot of people didn't realize this, but you can actually transfer disease from one tree to another just like a human would with the flu or cold or what have you. So how do you clean, instruct your crews to clean their tools? <laughs> do you guys have like hot soapy water you have to carry around all the time? Or Sarah mentioned alcohol. Do you have uh, sterile wipes? What, what's your best practice? Uh, we Actually alcohol. That's, that's what I've been uh, instructed to do and that's what I've learned to do. And uh, the crews always have that with them. Then is it like a hundred proof, eighty proof, or can I, I get like this? I can't tell you that. I make, <laughs> I, I make that I, in the back. I think it's eight to one. I think it's an eight to one ratio. But it's a little spray bottle, and they just they can hook it right on on their climbing belts or, or their and spray every cut if they have to. Um, when we talk about pruning deciduous trees, um, right now we've got oh, not only fire blight, but we've got a lot of sooty canker just floating around the valley here. Um, worst it's ever been. I mean, I've seen more sooty canker this year in 30 years. I mean, it's all in one year. It, it's all over. So any of the trees that you're you're pruning, the, the ash, the mulberries, the ficus, any of those that you're pruning this time of year is the great time to do it. We try to always do the alcohol spray. Okay. Well, that's great advice. And when we're pruning, you know, John's laid out a few rules and guidelines over the years about, you know, best practices for pruning. And it's changed a little bit. It used to be no more than 20% of the tree. Now it can be up to 30%. What, what am I looking at when I'm pruning a tree or if I'm looking at it, do it does it even need it? Um, sometimes it needs 5%. Sometimes it needs 30 
Um, based on maturity of the tree, the younger trees can take take more pruning, more loss of foliage. You have to think when you're pruning a tree and you're taking foliage away, the tree's saying, oh, oh my gosh, I lost my leaves. <laughs> so if you take off too much, it, psh, you end up with a, a spurt of growth. And you want to, when you're pruning, more direct the tree where you want it to grow. That's an interesting point because a lot of times we're pruning it because it's too big. But if you prune too much, it promotes more growth. Chia pet. <laughs> exactly. Chia, chia, chia. <laughs> Well, that and and uh, our natives, especially mesquites, you know, talk about something that can put on a lot of growth in a short period of time. Uh, you know, there there was a time when they were getting started. I was pruning them three, four times a year, just to try and keep it under control. Yeah, you can You have to pretty much at least annual maintenance on your mesquites. Um, control your water, um, and also when you have these great monsoon seasons and they just take off. Um, you, you want to just go in maybe after the, the spring flush of growth and prune them then, and then you can do another maintenance after the monsoons, um, but at least before the monsoons on the mesquites. Um, you can also use growth regulators. So you can do a good pruning on a tree and apply a growth regulator, and it kind of holds its prune quite a bit better. You don't get that aggressive growth. Now, when I've when we're pruning, we've got a lot of different tools. You've got, you know, your little hand shears, and you got loppers, and you've got saws and chainsaws. What um, what diameter am I looking for to for each different tool? Um, I have no idea. <laughs> um, it depends. You can get a hand pruner that's for a half inch or a three quarter inch. You go after a three quarter inch, you go up to a loppers. Um, but you can get trim saws. You can get, you know, all kinds of different sizes of saws. And sometimes it seems like I'll cut a branch with my loppers, and then I'll go to a smaller one that was it's harder than the previous one. I'm like, I just cut a bigger branch. Why is this one giving well, me such a hard time? Well, it's soft wood or harder wood, you know, or dead wood is even really hard to cut. Are you cleaning the blade? Uh, I am now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Okay. But no, it's a really good. It's right. a really good time to get out and prune the deciduous trees right now. Um, they're they're at bud break. But I've seen some ash really already starting to you know their past flower and getting itsy bitsy leaves. So yeah, that, I love those the Arizona ash and those. But they're always the first out to bloom, and it just looks like like a mold a, growth on it. And then all like of a sudden, just overnight, it <laughs> poof leaves out, and then yep. then the bees come for like a whole week. While they're flowering out, you just, the whole tree sounds like a big, huge beehive, and then and they're just gone. We're talking about all those things in our landscape and gardens today. And on that topic of pruning and shade trees, you were mentioning frost damage. Now, I don't know. We usually wait till after the end of the frost. And for the most part, this is a pretty safe time of the year for anyone below about 3,000 foot elevation in Arizona to not worry about frost damage. With that said, we might get it next week. So this advice on trimming frost damage, you might want to hold off a week or two till we see what happens next week, but how do we identify frost damage? 
especially if it's uh, can you get frost damage on a deciduous tree sure sure well it no it just drops its leaves it'll get new leaves <laughs> Um, so how can I tell that if it's frost damage if there's no leaves on it? Is is the um, stem a different color? Do I have to do the scratch test with my fingernail? Um, frost, I, I'm not sh- sure what you're <laughs> trying to get to. Um, frost damage, well, on trees, you just see more in the foliage, more in the foliage. And we haven't had any hard freeze that you're going to get some dieback. But if you do, then you, you just wait for the, the new growth to emerge and you can scratch it, scratch test it to find out what's alive. Um, most of the frost damage is in shrubs, or I didn't even see any frost damage on the, the sisus this year, and they're the most frost-sensitive of the trees. Um, but most of it is on shrubs, bougainvilleas and lantana, and you just kind of wait for that little bit of emergence of growth and little tiny buds coming out, and you trim back to those buds. And when you say back to that bud, I mean... One of the things I loved about the frost and the bougainvillea, I would cut it down to the ground. You can. Because they grow so fast, by the time the end of the year came, it had outgrown its place, and that was just like its natural trimming cycle. Well, there is a way to prune a shrub to control it through the season and have the Ain't nobody got time for that. <laughs> well, I know, but you can take them all the way down to the base. You can. Bougainvilleas, you can. You can. But I checked the calendars um, because we were going to do some citrus yesterday. And we're, we started our citrus this week, um, and I think you're safe to do it. I didn't see any cold temperatures through the end of the month. Sometimes we get that one little tiny freeze mid-March, and you just you can't avoid that. But I didn't see anything coming. I, I think summer's coming. I felt the sun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like we're already stepping out of the sun into the shade when we're walking properties. Now, to be clear, you want to remove the fruit first, then trim, correct? Well, um, yes, yes. Okay. Um, you want to remove the fruit anyway because you got your spring flush of growth going, and and it depends if the fruit's ready. Sometimes, different varieties you want to keep it on longer, um, but pruning can take off a lot of that weight of the of the fruit. And fr- fruit trees, in particular, I mean, they're very rarely do you see branch breakage, but I mean those lemons. Uh, trees, the bigger orange trees. Grapefruits, yeah. Grapefruit. You see a lot of branch breaking. You can see them split in half from the weight of the fruit. So that's why we really tried to selectively reduce end weight on them. People like to keep them more into shape, um, but that's more the stopping that branch split, you know, just psh. And on citrus, we don't get fruit growth on new. Uh, you know, it takes three or four years before a branch will start producing the fruit. So when you're trimming those, you know, if it, the outside limbs, you, you can look around and know that, okay, here's where the new growth is coming. We don't need to worry about this for weight control because it's going to come on the more mature branches. Um, well, the weight, yeah, it's, it's all around. The new branches can bring a lot of weight too. I mean, because you get aggressive sprouts. Um, but the, the thing about reducing and, and taking the weight off, you're also protecting the interior of the citrus tree and not letting the sun get in there to to get sunburn damage. Which is why you see a lot of the ones, uh, the old style where they would have the white trunk. You know, that wasn't really for decoration. That was that was for that sunburn, sunscreen Correct. for the tree. Correct. You want to let your citrus grow as low as you can to protect the base from the sun. And this is the right time to prune citrus. Um, between February 15th up to March 15th, even to the end of March, 
Um, we prune them to give them hard pruners. Um, we can do lighter prunes during the year, you know, lemons that have the little sprouts that go all over the place. Um, as long as you're protecting that bark, that's the most important thing on the citrus. And there are uh, paints now specifically for citrus tree that are designed to be the color of the bark. So if you have it pruned up <clears throat> or you've got an area that gets a lot of sun, you can put these paints on it that's not a white paint. It just blends in with the color yeah, of the tree. Yeah, there's one called Go Natural Citrus Paint, and I think it's at Ace Hardware. And it looks, it's the color of the bark. And it looks, it's aesthetically not, you know, Sun City White, <laughs> which which is pretty when you drive down those roads. It's it's all a different. You way. have to have them all. You can't just have one painted yeah. white. Yeah. Get, if it's uniform, then that's okay. But we've got, um, I know John's not a big fan of the paints, though. He'd rather see you Correct. let it naturally shade itself or wrap it in burlap or something uh, other than, than a paint. Well, the, the trees that I got delivered this year from Greenfield Citrus um, just had cardboard, you know, and, and that's what they use to protect their trunks. Now, you've also got on our talking trees um, on shrub renovation, and, we're, you know, that's the time for, you know, if we don't have uh, frost, any frost damage that we're trimming back, what are we looking for in shrub renovation just for this time of year? Well, it's a good time for shrub renovation, and the difficulty is is a lot of landscapers trim things and shear them into balls. And as you do that, you get a lot of growth on the outer part of the bush and nothing on the interior. So um, the trees kind of, or the bush is kind of living on the foliage, the food made in the foliage on the outer 5% of the plant. And so it's really on a diet. And so we renovate shrubs to take them down to one-third, take out all the, the crud out of the beginning, uh, out of the base of them, and you do it to rejuvenate. And so we re renovate to rejuvenate and bring new growth and new life so that light penetrates all the way into the base of the shrubs, and you get a lot more natural growth and a lot more flowers. The plant will take less water, um, and it's aesthetically much more beautiful. Now, asking a favorite tree is, you know, an impossible question. Asking a favorite shrub is an impossible question. Everyone has their own opinion. But what are shrubs that do well in uh, the low desert? Um, any of the Texas sage, a lot of the native shrubs. Tacomas do good. Um, th there's just a whole list of shrubs that you could go on the Elko website, Arizona Landscape Contractors Association. And I think I put it, gave you that for a link if um, the listeners want to go on to your website, there's a link there to um, Arizona Landscape Contractors, and there's a lot of good information. And also, if you want to look on um, the Landscape Plants for Arizona Deserts, has a great color photographic um, presentation of plants that do really well with low water. What plant? What, what shrubs do best for wildlife? Well, you know... They're really opportunistic, um, so they're going to try and find really any great branching tree. We see um, mesquites a lot of time do have a lot of branches there, so we'll see a lot of the doves and sparrows putting nests in there. Um, and then hummingbirds, they're so tiny, and those are the ones that we're going to be worrying about right now. They're really active, and they're probably, if you're taking your morning walk, the, the parents are probably buzzing by your head right now. Um, their nests are just so tiny that they can pretty much fit 
on any of the, the trees around us. Um, we've seen them as small as going into the, the center of a chain link fence. That's how tiny hummingbird nests are. The problem then comes with finding that hummingbird nest when you are trimming um, because you know that it's nearby because the parent hummingbird is flitting around your head and yelling at you. Um, but that nest is so tiny that you really just have to kind of step back and observe to see where the parent eventually lands um, because their nests are made out of, of cobwebs and um, little pieces of feathers and everything, and it's it's smaller than the cup of your hand. Um, so uh, then you get um, verdin that have satellite nests, and they'll they'll do those also when, you know, your mesquites and palaverdes, and they will have a whole system of nests in one area. And so um, when we go out and survey before we're working with any companies that are having to take trees down for construction or anything, you know, we have to sit there and observe to see which ones are the active ones where the, the nesting pair actually are having babies as compared to ones that are just a satellite nest that they have their homes. Um, and then, of course, you know, we talked about the palm trees. It's, it's really we have so many different species of birds and they're all going to take advantage of every layer of trees and shrubs and even even underground like the burrowing owls so very it's diverse kind of what you were talking about the microclimates and and so you want a variety of trees you want a variety of shrubs so they're always blooming and they're creating an environment that wildlife and and tr and birds can survive in and when we're talking about birds and trees and pruning and not pruning and uh you know letting them kind of coexist and help them go along. And you were talking about the hummingbirds and being such a small nest. How can you tell if it's an active nest or not active nest? I mean, and you hear people all the time, well, don't touch it because the mother bird won't ever come back. I'm like, I don't think that's true. Luckily, you're right. That is not true. That's, that's an old wives' tale that uh, if you touch a baby bird and put it back in its nest, the parents won't come back because birds do not have a sense of smell, really. So um, whereas mammals have a really keen sense of smell, and that may be true for if you, you know, touch a, a mammal baby, um, the parents may be a little wary. Um, but birds don't smell at all. So really the way to know that you have an active nest is that that parent is going to fly off. Like Gary was saying earlier, you're going to flush it. And all of a sudden you're going to yeah hear those wings um, with the hummingbirds. They're tiny but mighty. They will swoop down at you. Um, so it's, it's, it's a lot of observation. And then fish and wildlife uh, doesn't consider an act or a nest active until there's actually eggs in it. That's when they become federally protected, once the eggs are actually in there. Um, so that's when you really aren't supposed to be touching them or taking them at that point. Uh, All nests are federally protected if there's pretty an egg much, in it? Yeah, pretty I much everything that's on that. the, I didn't either. the, <laughs> wow. the Migratory Bird Treaty Act um, pretty much protects almost all those birds that you see that it's easier to list the ones that aren't protected. And that's the, the pigeon, the European collared dove, the European scar, uh, starling, the English sparrow, and oh, the lovebird. They are yeah. all introduced species, so they're not actually <clears throat> protected, but mockingbirds, grackles, woodpeckers. Oh, not those. Oh, <laughs> yeah, grackles. woodpeckers are a problem. <laughs> you know, we were going to talk about that today. Go ahead. Okay, so woodpecker damage in trees. That's what I kind of wanted to talk about. And I wanted to ask you about, Laura, because, you know, we have woodpeckers, and I went up and looked up an article by Peter Warren. He's an entomologist for the university, and I found out that woodpeckers or birds actually peck holes in the trees so that sap flows so they attract the insects. 
Yeah, it's, it's brilliant. <laughs> Super smart of them. Um, unfortunately, yes, that does cause the damage. Um, I, we get a lot of calls this time of year. You know, there are woodpeckers banging all over my house. My, my poor daughter is 14 years old and likes to sleep late, and she's got a woodpecker nest in the, the roof above her, so she hears the babies right at sunrise. So she's asking how we can stop that. Um, we have them at Liberty Wildlife because we have beautiful uh, wood paneling there, and they are trying to peck into there. Um, it's hard as a bird lover, of course, because I love watching it. Um, but we don't like the damage either. So uh, a lot of it is really being on the ball and, and trying to create motion there to scare them away. So either you come out running out to get them. Some people do those those hanging CDs. Some people do little laser lights. Um, and then it's promoting another habitat. So we've actually at Liberty Wildlife put up birdhouses and to try and promote them to go into. I, I have a Gila woodpecker that shows up every March and wakes me up and taps on my metal. Yes. They are protected, so you can't hurt them. That is correct. They are protected. Um, so, yeah, you can't do anything to them besides shoo them away. Um, and they will bang on metal. When I worked at the zoo, actually, there was a, a trailer, a metal trailer, that we had one that every day was banging on it. They actually say that might be a form of them... Um, communicating to say that that's their territory. The territory. And it's more of a territorial exactly. thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, oh, and they do like the metal roofs. But the other thing we see with woodpeckers is that they're a lot of times going after the flathead boars inside the bark. So flathead boars kind of um, live um, underneath in the cambium of the tree until they're large enough to go to the center and turn into a beetle and come out, and they leave a little oval hole. But the woodpeckers go after them um, as a source of food. So a lot of times woodpecker damage is an indication of a problem. A gigantic tree, a ginormous tree, a humongous tree for all the world to see. Yes. You've done this once. <laughs> Talking trees. <laughs> is it, really it is, bad? yeah. He, he doesn't. He's getting warmed up to the mic. He's been here four times. You've spoken too. <laughs> I'm trying, man. I'm trying. You can get there. You know, I like just, to watch. I like to watch people talk. That's you know, my thing. Well, and you, you know, you, you observe a few times. You get the flow of it, and then it's it's easier to jump in. I know the first time was rather intimidating. I walked in this building and what am I doing here? They, you know, they put a lot of money into this building. Yeah. They did a really nice job. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm happy to be here. That's what matters. Well, we're glad you're here. It's Gary Peterson of Save a Tree, along with Sarah Maitland and Laura Hackett of Liberty Wildlife. And we're going to uh, quick take a call. Julie called in, and she's got a citrus that's lacking juice. Good morning, Julie. Good morning, Julie. We'll okay. just assume she put her phone down and walked away. Yeah, she was wondering about, um, you had told me on the break, that she was wondering why she didn't have juicy fruit. And I guess it's hard to just look at it in one perspective. You have to look at the whole environment of a citrus tree. Um, it's, it's correct watering. It's um, a correct, you know, everything involved, the soil, everything. But fertilization really and getting on a nutrient program is the best way to have a really good successful crop. And Save a Tree, we just started our, our spring fertilization so we do a spring, um, summer, and a fall fertilization for citrus. And I, I think that's the best way to have success. Now, if she just moved in the house and she opened up the fruit and it was just dry in the middle, it might have just been an ornamental tree or a rootstock lemon. Um, so it's, it's difficult to, to know 
you and know, it's without looking at the whole environment. It's difficult for people that have moved here to understand, okay, why do you have an orange tree that's only ornamental? If you're going to plant an orange tree, why not plant something I'm going to eat? But there was a ton of ornamentals that were planted throughout the valley um, just as, you know, because citrus grow very well here. It's pretty. It's pretty to have the orange fruit. Uh, the fruit comes on, and you, I mean, other than tasting it and deciding, wow, this is sour and nasty, there's really not a way to know if it's ornamental no, not or by edible. Looking <laughs> at it. No, but the lemons, um, we have a rootstock that's a, a rough lemon, and you cut it open, and there's, there's, it's just pith in the middle. It's not, it's not juicy. And, and so that's just a rootstock. And a lot of times, the base tar- part of the citrus tree will die. Someone moves in a house, and the, the, the rootstock's grown into a tree, and they don't have the right fruit, and they don't know why. <laughs> but, um, no, really getting into a, a regular nutrient program, especially, especially for citrus and queen palms, is really important. We have a client that that's exactly what happened. It was a tangerine tree, and it died. And then all of a sudden, the rootstock took over from this lemon. And like, it turned into a lemon tree. Tried to explain a couple times, no, you know, the, the way citrus are, well, are grafted. grafted yeah. You know, they're not grown from seed. You take a rootstock and you put it together with a fruiting stock, and your fruiting stock died, so your rootstock took over. But they, they were happy thinking that my, my tangerine turned into a lemon tree, and it's a miracle. Well, a lot of times you can recognize the rootstock because it's really, really, um, it comes from the base below the graft, and it shoots really tall, and it's got big daggers on it. And a lot of times it even has three leaves, you know, and it's a compound leaf instead of a single leaf. So um, there's ways to recognize that. And uh, as we wrap up, let's get uh, some contact information if somebody wanted to talk to an arborist. I know we tried to take Julie. We had Juan from uh, a 520 number that had called in, and Gary's busy screening. He's screening and uh, running the board today because our <coughs> our call screener is uh, generally Jennifer um, and her and Rosie coming back from the KBiz show in Orlando didn't catch their connecting flight into Austin in time to get to Phoenix. So they're, uh, they're stuck in Austin and will be joining us online. So he's, he's kind of multitasking back there. But uh, somebody wanted to talk to you all during the week. What would be the best way to contact Save a Tree? Um, our phone number is 602-788-0005. And we've got a great office staff that will, you know, take your call and direct you into the arborist that's in your area. I'm, I'm pretty much, you know, up in the desert and I love it, but um, Scott and Roy are down in the valley here, and and I do come into the valley too. But um, we can either, we can help you with any of your problems. And if somebody wanted to support Liberty Wildlife, Laura, how do they uh, volunteer, donate? Yeah, we we depend on volunteers and donations. So you can go to www.libertywildlife.org to find out about how to come visit us, how to bring. Uh, orphaned animals or injured animals to our hospital and how to donate so you could say today we saved a tree and save a bird and i think we needed that that should be the name save a bird there you go (laughs) yes always